Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of this series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Awakening Conscience, The Potential Value of Not Expressing or Suppressing Negative Emotions. The presentation occurred as a panel discussion on November 27, 2021, via Zoom, with Red Hawk, acclaimed poet and the author of 12 books, including Self-Observation and Self-Remembering, Clelia Lewis, a freelance editor and author of Stainless Heart, The Wisdom of Remorse, and Vijay Fedorshak, author of Shadow on the Path and Father and Son. Red Hawk begins with an invocation to teachers in the spiritual lineage he has been drawn to. He then refers to the work, a system developed by George Gurdjieff that involves work on self, which many consider essential if one is to go deeper into the heart of the path. Red Hawk's book, The Way of the Wise Woman, and a quote by the American master Lee Lozowick, which is on the back cover, is also referenced in the presentation. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. I always begin any public presentation with setting the chamber, so I'm going to do that right now. Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Jaya Guru Raya. Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Jaya Guru Raya. Jai Shri Kepali, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Guru Maharaj, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar. Jai Shri Kepali, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Guru Maharaj. Yogi Ram Surat Kumar. What this does is places us under one of the great spiritual laws which the master, that good master Jesus taught, which is when two or more are gathered in my name, there will I be also. So this is a sacred, empowered, invocational chamber now, which means that help has arrived by law. When we invoke the name of Mr. Lee and Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, by law they must respond and do, and they come to feed on the energetic food which is generated by this chamber, and to feed those in the chamber as well, and to give help in the chamber. So, The subject is conscience, and it's the most important subject that one can possibly address in terms of one's personal work, in terms of one's work with others, and in terms of one's work for the work. 
conscience, people will say, well, everybody has one. And they're both right and wrong when they say that. What everybody has who's ever embodied in a mammal form, human in a mammal form, is a mustard seed of conscience. Conscience may be fully developed, but our connection with it is not available to us. And that connection has to be developed. And the work tells us that there are very definite ways that one can develop the connection with conscience. The aim is to finally work in such a way that conscience occupies the central active position in one's life, in one's relationships, and in one's work life. So first, a couple of things about conscience so that we can have a kind of mutual understanding. The first one is that conscience never speaks. Conscience never speaks. It is silent witness, and it only feels. So conscience communicates with me via feeling attention. The second thing about conscience is that it acts as a compass in the human form. And that compass always points towards true north. True north is non-judgmental love. So conscience always points me towards love if I can receive it. If I have created a receptive mechanism to respond to conscience. The third thing to know about conscience is it has no negative side. Therefore, conscience never judges. It never criticizes. It never condemns. It always only points towards the goodness of love. The interesting thing about conscience is that it is never wrong. How is it possible that there is a force in me which is never wrong, which always points towards love, which always orients me towards love. One investigates conscience. I've spent most of my adult life in this investigation. It has had profound implications for my life. One of the things that I have understood, and again, this is that good master Jesus who first made the connection in me between God and love. Jesus' teaching on this is very simple. Love is God. God is love. So one can say then that conscience always directs me towards the God of love. That good master Jesus also made this profound teaching, not my will, thy will be done. Speaking about God the Father in heaven, what he called God. Not my will, thy will be done. And so the question for any intelligent person and any sincere practitioner is, how can I possibly know the will of God so that I might serve that will? And what has been revealed to me over years of investigation of conscience is this. Conscience is the will of God in me. So when one arrives at the point of surrendering to one's conscience, one is surrendering to love is giving one's life over to the service of love. One is surrendering to the will of God, which is love. And eventually, the more conscience is made the active force in one's body, in one's life, 
in one's relationships, in one's work life. The more one becomes a servant of love and becomes love and becomes a radiant source of love in the radiant field of love, the field of vibratory energetic awareness in which everything arises as its life and disappears. That field of vibratory energetic awareness is a field of love. And it's possible then for a human to become a point in that field. So when one speaks of conscience, one must of necessity begin to address the buffer system. Everyone has a buffer system. And if you want to read a good introductory discussion of buffers, read chapter 11 in the book Self-Observation, but just briefly. Buffers are unconscious, mechanical, habitual devices hardwired into the intellectual-emotional complex. They are unconscious, mechanical habits, and they consist of things like complaint, judgment, justification, blame, being offended, self-importance, negative emotions. Negative emotions are the ground of the buffer system. The function of the buffer system, it has several very interesting and important functions. One, it blinds me to my contradictions. I think I'm such and such a person, and I pride myself on being such and such a person. And because of the buffer systems, I am prevented from seeing the many contradictions to what I profess to be on a daily basis, in relationships, in myself. Another important function of the buffer system is that it keeps me all my life in the victim position because one of its functions is to avoid feeling. It keeps ego in the dominant or active position. And most importantly, in regards to the discussion at hand tonight, the buffer system negates the influence of conscience. It keeps conscience passive so that it, its influence cannot be felt. And all of our lives are directed by this buffer system and by our self-importance. I am quoting Carlos Castaneda now from his teacher, Don Juan Matus. Quote, what weakens us is feeling offended by the deeds and misdeeds of other men. Our self-importance requires that we spend most of our lives offended by someone, unquote. Negative emotions. So I'm going to give a very simple definition of negative emotion. Any unconscious, automatic, mechanical emotion with which I identify is a negative emotion. Well, now, why is that? Well, the act of identification means that I have stolen the energy from attention in order for that emotion to realize its agenda. That's a negative exchange of energy. The energy goes from the attention to the emotion, and the emotion consumes the energy. Any emotion which arises which I don't identify with, there is a positive exchange of energy. That is, the energy in that emotion then goes to attention and attention is able to maintain its stability for a little longer before it's taken. 
Now, I'm going to end this part of my discussion by giving you a caveat, and that is the non-expression and non-suppression of negative emotion is a work principle. It's one of the foundational practices of work on self. It is not the same as not talking about your trauma, not speaking about your trauma. As it happened, I got my recent copy of Rattle, one of my favorite poetry journals, and in it is a long interview with James Pennebaker. James Pennebaker is a nationally known and recognized social psychologist. He's the author of the immensely popular book called Opening Up, The Healing Power of Expressing Emotion and Writing to Heal. And he has made a lifelong study of trauma and the expression of trauma. He began by studying sexual trauma. And I'm quoting now from the interview, quote, if a person had a sexual trauma, they were far more likely to report every kind of physical symptom you can possibly imagine, unquote. So then the question is, is, is it just sexual trauma? And he went on to report that they did a survey with 24,000 responses. I'm going to read this quote now. Of these 24,000 people, the average age was about 38 years old, and about 22% of the women and 11% of men reported having had a traumatic sexual experience prior to the age of 17. And those who endorsed that item were more likely to have been diagnosed in their lifetime with cancer, high blood pressure, ulcers, cold, flus, major health problems, minor health problems. And this is, again, his quote. I started talking to people. I discovered that the issue was that most people who had had a traumatic sexual experience had not talked about it with others. Or if they had, they may have talked once, maybe, to their mother or a family member, and often they were slapped down, essentially told, that didn't happen to you, or I don't want to hear anything more about it. I ended up doing some additional surveys with other samples over the years and finding that of all the traumas I studied, people were least likely to talk about a sexual trauma. That made me start wondering, was the problem that having a sexual trauma caused health problems, or was it any trauma that you didn't talk about? And it turned out it was the latter, that any trauma is traumatic, but if you don't talk about it, it becomes far more traumatic and associated with more health problems. So I want to simply say to you, if you have some major traumatic experience and you have not talked about it or written about it, I urge you to talk to someone you trust, to get professional help to talk it through, to write about it. Poetry is a great outlet for that, but the more one addresses that trauma, the healthier one's body becomes, the healthier one's emotions and psychology become. They did a study then, follow-up study, in which the, they were doing work on immunology at Ohio State. They studied blood from people before they talked about their trauma, the last day of writing about their trauma, and then six weeks later, the quote, we found that those who wrote about traumatic experiences showed enhanced immune function compared to the control group. And they also went to the student health centers 50% less. All right. 
So the non-expression of negative emotions is a work task. It is for people who have worked through their deepest psychological and emotional traumas and are prepared to embrace the responsibility of transformation of emotion and the energy of emotion in themselves. So now to my friends. All right. Wow. Thank you, Red Hawk. There was so much there. So you defined conscience a little bit when you said it never speaks, it only feels and communicates via feeling attention. When I studied fourth way literature for a while and was kind of working with that in my life, and I came across the idea of conscience, the way I came to understand it was it's in the feeling centers of the being, the heart center, the feeling centers. And it's actually an internal unity in the sense that all those conflicting and unconscious impulses that we have generally in life that drive us one way or another are brought together under the leadership of a consistent source of being and value. So that's how I was thinking about this and how I would define conscience. And those were the words that I came up with. Does that sound similar? Can you repeat that for me, Playlia, please? Conscience is an internal unity in the sense that the different eyes or unconscious impulses that drive us this way and that are brought together under the leadership of a consistent source of being and value within. Okay. I can respond to that. First of all, it's absolutely my experience that conscience is an internal unifying force. It unites all of my centers when it is in the active position. Secondly, when conscience responds, I become objectively clear about all of my contradictions, about my whole history, the personal history of the mammal becomes very clear, and all of those times when I have gone against conscience are obvious to me and create what is called remorse of conscience. Remorse is a force from higher. It comes from on high. It's transformative. And it's conscience revealing my contradictions and holding them without judgment making them objectively clear to me that creates remorse. And my own experience is remorse transforms my heart. Thank you. Thank you, Clelia. A question that came up as you were speaking, when you said that conscience communicates via feeling attention, the question I had was, when you say feeling attention, in what way do we feel this feeling? In other words, for me, over the years, what I've realized is that what's required is to feel in the body. So do you mean like emotional feeling? It communicates by sensations in your body. Could you say something about that? Thank you. Attention is not just intellectual. The intellectual center can pay attention, of course, we know this. The emotional center also has an attention function. The attention of emotion 
is different than the attention of the mind. Sensation has an attention function. That's the instinctive center. That attention is different from emotional attention and from intellectual attention. Feeling attention is, I think you said this, at the heart center. And feeling attention unites all of those other various kinds of attention which are available to me into a single focal point. And that focal point, at least in me, is experienced at the heart center or at the solar plexus, that area. And the thing about conscience is there are many, many roads to the placing of conscience in the active position, awakening it is what we call it. There are many, many roads, and it's unique with each individual. So one of my tendencies of the way my mind works is that I tend to speak in black and white terms, and, and that's not useful. So I don't want to give the impression that there's only one way that one does this, that one approaches and investigates conscience. That investigation must be for each individual unique. But it begins with feeling in the body. How do I begin to recognize conscience when it responds? Because its response is quick and it is very small at first and easily overridden by the mind and by the buffer system, you see, because that's the function of the buffer system is to keep conscience passive and to keep ego in the active position. So I have to train attention to recognize that feeling when it arises. It's a feeling that we all know. I shouldn't do this. I don't want to go there. And yet we override that constantly. But we all know that feeling. I just felt that it wasn't the right thing to do. We all say that after the fact. I knew I shouldn't have done that. How did I know that? Because something responded in me very quietly, without pressure, without aggression, without forcing itself, without demanding. It simply responded. And I can train myself. I am training myself to respond to that feeling and to place it in the active position. I know for myself that over the years, as I've worked with my understanding of remorse and my experience of it in so many ways in my life, that one of the most difficult things for me has been to learn how to just really stay with whatever arises. And a big part of learning to stay with whatever arises is learning how to be okay with and embrace feeling in my body, actual sensation. So when you were saying that the buffer system blocks us from feeling, I was thinking, yeah, that's right. That's what's really difficult to do is to feel, just feel. We are, I am trained over a lifetime to escape from difficult feelings, grief, sorrow, Rage, remorse, shame, fear, 
the manipulator of the buffer system behind all of it is fear. The buffer system is a strategy to avoid relationship. And one of the main functions of that is to avoid relationship with my feelings. Mm-hmm. Here's what I've experienced now with conscience in the active position. The slightest deviation from love, which happens fairly regularly with me, is unbearable. It's so painful that I am compelled to realign as quickly as I possibly can with conscience. To make amends when it's necessary, to forgive when it's necessary, to apologize when it's necessary, but also to not talk about those powerful feelings to not repress them, to not talk about them, but to learn to use the food that that energy represents to feed the being so that the heart opens and grows and changes. Chandrika has just given me a note, which is a very interesting note. She said, what is the relationship between sensation and feeling? The wonderful question. I wonder if we can go into that a little, Qualia. Yeah. The difference between sensation and feeling. I have a question about it too, because for me, being a very intellectually oriented person most of my life, and then also periodically very emotional, (laughs) um, and I've also done some trauma work. So I've done some very specific work to digest it so it's not like running me. And, And in doing that work, I discovered sensation. And it was just a revelation to me because I hadn't ever noticed, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I hadn't ever noticed that when I'm experiencing emotions, that there actually are sensations underneath that. And if I basically let go of the thinking and let go of the emotion itself and just pay attention to what's going on in my body, then I notice the energy So this relates to non-expression of negative emotion because what I've started to see is that what on the surface is the negative emotion. You know, it's usually there's some kind of mental process with it. There's a desire to express it. There's a whole story usually that goes along with it. When I let go of that and just pay attention to what's going on in my body, I notice there's a lot of energy. So one negative emotion, I don't know if you would call it a negative emotion, but maybe the way you defined it before it would be, I was experiencing a lot of anxiety for months and it would wake me up at night and and then I'd be, you know, trying to solve this issue of my anxiety. And I, when I was doing the trauma work and learned how to just pay attention to my sensations, I started applying it to this anxiety. Okay, the anxiety is arising, my mind's doing all this stuff. And then I went, what's actually going on in my body? And when I really looked at what was going on in my body, it was quite neutral. It was just energy. And I realized, whoa, that could be just excitement. Like, what if I'm not afraid right now? What if there's just energy here and I'm just interpreting it? I'm just judging it. You know, I'm just giving it meaning that it doesn't have. And it's actually just energy in my body. And it was like this switch. Well, the whole thing just shifted and changed. Because I disidentified with it. I stopped giving it meaning and was more paying attention to just what is this in the body? Yeah? What if I don't name the energy? That's just a question I'm posing. What 
happens to the energy if I don't name it, if I stay actively still? Yeah. Then what you've just described is my experience as well. The energy is neutral. Naming it is identifying with it. The moment I name it, I'm identified with it. If the effort is to remain actively still inside, the law is energy can neither be created nor destroyed, only transformed. If I don't identify with the energy, the body knows what to do with it. The body is allowed to operate in its highest function, which is as an energy transformation instrument. It then transforms the coarse energy of emotion into a much finer energy, which feeds the being. It feeds the earth. It feeds all entities above us in scale all the way back to our creator. And we are operating then under the law of reciprocal maintenance. That is, we are functioning as a food source to maintain the creation. And the earth can use that finer energy for its own transformation then and not be constantly dealing with the sorrow and trauma of human negative emotion. So when we're talking about not expressing negative emotions, in my experience, what happens is that there's more and more energy in the body. And so I actually have to continue building a capacity to feel things because I almost start to feel things more and more intensely. Like there's more energy, so there's more feeling. And if I'm not able to hold that, then it tends to come out sideways or in bursts or in (laughs) self-sabotage. Because I don't have the vessel yet that can hold the energy without leaking it. So the, the work is to contain to contain the energy, not to express it, not to repress it, but to contain it, which creates heat, friction. And it's friction which allows different energies to unite and blend in me. Right. So to contain the energy of emotion is real work. That's why it's called the work. It's conscious labor. Yeah. And I wrote down this phrase today when I was preparing myself for our conversation. The phrase that came to my mind was somatic resilience. Uh, This was under the subject of building a strong alchemical chamber. I'll just read you what I wrote to myself. As we practice non-expression of negative emotion or any other forms of energy cultivation and containment, we need to couple this with an intelligent strategy for developing somatic resilience. A strong nervous system and a balanced chemistry are necessary to work with increased currents of energy. A regulated lifestyle that is responsibly managed is needed as well. Non-expression of negative emotion is not an abstract concept. It's physiological. That's why suppression is so unhealthy. Because the physical energy can wreak havoc in our bodies and minds if we're not consciously being in relationship with it, accepting and feeling it fully in the body. So I have this right now, this very strong sense for myself 
needing to develop somatic resilience in the body, in the nervous system. As I was building more and more energy in my body, it started to break down the body and my chemistry, partly because I'm older now and I was going through menopause or something. (laughs) And it became very noticeable. And I realized, okay, I can't be naive about this. I can't just go, you know, I'm going to build all this energy if the reality is, is that I'm not able to hold it in a non-destructive way, if that makes sense. It does. So about what you just wrote, it's completely factual. All right. So K-I-S-S, keep it slow and simple. No sudden movements. Never work beyond your capacity, but work to your full capacity. Right. And don't try to work all the time. Set aside specific times every day when your only intention is to do this work. And then drop it. When you remember and something arises and it seems appropriate that, oh, here's a chance to work with negative emotion, perfectly okay. Go into it. Use the breath. Stay with it for as long as you can, three or four breaths before you get taken, and then drop it. The beauty of self-remembering self-observation, which I call the practice of presence, it is a self-correcting mechanism. It is tailored to each single individual. It's not the same for any two people. It is tailored to my ability to sustain attention. It always works only as slow or as fast as I can manage, period. And so this is a slow process, this transformation. Mm -hmm. It takes enormous patience. And to push it is ego-driven. To try to force it is ego-driven and can only lead to dis-ease. I have to relax and let the work become feminized. It's the feminine aspect which arises in the work which will save me and heal me. Right? So what's the masculine force in me? The will of attention is masculine. The ability to move attention out of the mind and down lower in the body so that attention is in the feeling center, is in the emotional center, is in the sexual center, is in the instinctive center. Finally, the whole body becomes a sense organ. To hold attention down below the neck, that's a masculine move. That creates sanctuary. That creates a safe place For the feminine, the receptive, the passive, which is conscience, to become active, passively active. The masculine becomes actively passive, holding attention. And the more energy that I allow and create, the more I'm able to hold attention, to become stable in attention. But the feminine emerges as a passive principle, a receptive principle, It allows itself to be penetrated for a seed of the Dharma to be planted in me and for that seed to come to life. Feminization of the work is utterly important. And if you look at the back cover of The Way of the Wise Woman, Mr. Lee's quote about the feminization of the work is is absolutely brilliant. It's perfectly logical. Hey, do you have that book at hand by any chance? 
I can't be aggressive in this work because it doesn't pay. It, it leads nowhere. I can't force this work. I can't try to muscle this work. I Believe me, I've spent many years doing exactly that. BJ, you've got the quote? I do. Can you read it, please? <clears throat> okay. Transformation is not a masculine process. The work is not a masculine process. Practice, sadhana, surrender to the will of God are not masculine processes. Many people assume they need to batter practice, to club it to death, until finally they will dominate, win, end up victorious. But this approach does not work, plainly and simply. The process is feminine, and the keys to the lock which imprisons reality or truth is in a feminine approach. We must go at this knot of confusion called the mind or sleep or unconsciousness or illusion or maya with very gentle, humorous, patient, accepting relationships to it. We can practice vigorously, but with bright and flexible vigor, not rigid, righteous vigor. We must give ourselves time to relax into this enlightenment, whatever it is, rather than trying to force it to take us over, permeate our fears and delusion, which of course it cannot do. If we approach the work as woman, with a capital W, we may just discover something quite unexpected and surprising, but no less delightful. Thank you, BJ. Any response from you? Uh, I think I would like to wait until you have completed and then say a few things. So I'd like to hear what you did, and then we can open it up. Well, it's great that there's such passionate interest in this subject and in really diving into it. So I'm not a Gurdjieffian student, no expert on the subject. But I studied with Lee Loswick, as some of us on the call have. And I think that someone who knows and lives the principles of a real tradition knows the principles of other traditions. And we really worked with the principles in the Gurdjieff work. So I was just reading through the fourth way by Ospensky and remembering many years ago when we delved deeply into a study of work on self, which has continued throughout the time of our sadhanas, those of us who studied with Lee. And Ospensky describes conscience as an emotional understanding of truth. I kind of get that. It's like a feeling sense of what is right. But conscience in the way that we're discussing it here tonight goes much deeper than, oh, you know, I cannot tell a lie. It goes into like our relationship with life and everyone and everything. He says, Aspensky, that conscience is the aim of the system. Wow, that gets my attention. We're talking about, I think, as you mentioned, Red Hawk, I can't remember how you put it, but it's everything. Yes. And he says that it's a state in which one cannot hide from oneself. And it must be developed or awakened. And so to begin with this, I need to look at the areas where I hide from myself. And what nudges me 
to realize, oh, I'm doing some hiding from myself. It's something I can see when I'm all of a sudden find myself protecting myself in some way. Surprisingly, when my guards go up, okay, what am I hiding from here? BJ, this is why the investigation of the buffer system is crucial, because it is to allow me to hide from myself. So if we see ourselves clearly, it seems like this is what opens us up to conscience. And we can only do that by facing contradictions. So what are the contradictions that I have in myself? And I, this is what happens with the Saturday talks here is once you agree to participate in something, then everything coalesces to bring the considerations into your awareness. So I realized that I, we, I think, <laughs> like to see and identify with positive qualities. But we all have positive and negative light and dark. And I'm remembering how much in love with my wife I have been in my life. But I also remember times when I was not in that state. I mean, in a big way. Hard to admit, but there were times when I was threatened, not because of her, but because something in me was really opening up that I didn't really want to deal with or look at. And this contradiction in myself was apparent. And I didn't always own that in the moment. There's also this urge to help others. I'm a trauma therapist by profession. I don't want to identify with that, but that's my work. And there's this, oh, what do they call it? Helper's disease that many of us have. And just the other day, there's a girl, a very traumatized girl, with a lot of different kinds of traumas. She's just in another universe. A friend of hers tried to commit suicide or was threatening to do so and got taken away from the place where they were both receiving treatment. And this kid that was so upset was so attached to this kid. She didn't really have many attachments in her life, but she was attached to this kid and she was besides herself and they wanted a therapist to talk to her. So I go over there. And while there are times when I just get immersed in really wanting to be there for someone, on this particular day, I had so much to do. And I'm thinking to myself, how to deal with this, not thinking about the kid, really thinking about me. And there's this contradiction. And because of grace, I feel like I just sunk into it and was really there for the kid. And it, it really worked out. But I see these contradictions. So in other traditions, it seems to me like conscience might be given different names or might be referred to in different ways. But I think the principles are the same in different traditions. Loving one's neighbor, loving one's enemies. Oh my God, like I can kind of toss that phrase off. But there is a lot to consider in loving one's enemies. And the realization of non-duality, if that is really the case, then I have a responsibility to all of life. Everything is connected and one with. I have this responsibility. And I feel like there's conscience involved in that. I just can't turn away from a situation where something is needed when I'm in conscience. 
in a kind of Hindu way, I suppose, non-duality, in a Buddhist sense, the idea of compassion and seeing the suffering of humanity and particularly of individuals who I come in contact with. To me, all those things kind of relate to this idea of conscience. So why the practice of non-expression of negative emotions? Why that? And this is a very imprecise (laughs) definition. I I don't even mean to define it this way, but it's kind of points in the direction of looking at negative emotions. When I feel unloved for something, it's not like I should love everything necessarily. I mean, in in the way that we'd ordinarily consider the world, like I don't love it when I get a flat tire necessarily. But can I be with that and accept that and move in that direction of, okay, keeping a cheerful attitude about things or holding things in some perspective of relationship to it. But when I have a strong dislike or a feeling of unlove, a reaction or a critical judgment about what is, it happens so automatically. And to work with this, I'm on a line to get a COVID booster shot. And this line in Safeway is really lengthy. I don't know. There's at least a dozen people in this line and they are all, excuse me, bitching. I mean, they're really complaining because they sign people up, at least five people for a 930 appointment and I'm one of them. And I'm hearing all this complaining and I turn around and I find myself nodding and agreeing with the things that people are saying. Spensky says that negative emotions are completely useless. In that situation, I can not be above it all and think, oh, look at these people who are all complaining about things and I'm spiritual, but I can look at this and be in relationship with them and just not feed it. We can talk about different things rather than how terrible this pharmacy is for having committed this heinous crime of keeping us waiting for 15 or 20 minutes. So I don't believe that you can change the feeling. This feeling of complaint or upset or disturbance is going to come up. But Spensky says that you can prepare the ground with a change of attitude. And so what does that mean for me? People might look at this differently and have different ways of saying what that means. But for me, Reminding myself that my reaction is in me. It's my reaction. No one else is responsible for my negative emotion. It comes up and I can work with that, but it's not because of these pharmacists. That's already in me, this negative emotion. So what do I want to do with it? So I'm reading this amazing book. I just think in terms of practical value, This book, Ever-Present Peace by Arnaud Desjardins, is extraordinary. Practical work on self in the same way, I mean, it's different, but in a similar way to self-observation, that book. Because if you want to practically work rather than just theorize about the potential value of practices like non-expressing negative emotion, these books are for you. Who wants to do that? What Arnaud Desjardins says, who was a great French master. Truly. He says that every tradition says that something in us has to change. In us. If we're going to study ourselves, what is it in us that has to change 
And how do we work with that? So he says that we can do a turnaround, a turnaround in the moment when we find ourselves in a state of unlove. This had such an impact on me just to read that. And I said, I don't do that. But I can start to remind myself when I'm on this line in Safeway, I can do a turnaround here. Or in relationship to someone who doesn't email me back, and it probably happens to all of us, or someone says something hurtful, all of a sudden I can feel in my body the contraction and some resentment, maybe. This is not a bad thing or an awful thing. In fact, it's propelling me to go deeper. Arnaud says that if we want happiness, we have to renounce holding a grudge. Wow. It's easy to say, but when in the moment of feeling some resentment, can I do a turnaround? An about face in the moment is possible, he says, and it's not possible to realize the fruits of the path without doing that. Wow. Loving what we do not love. To me, this involves seeing myself, seeing my negative emotions when they come up, and being willing to suffer that a bit. My daughter, I'm on the phone with my daughter. I love my daughter, as we all love our children. So she says something to me, and she's in a mood. And she says something to me, which kind of tweaks me a little bit. And I don't really catch it. And I say something a little bit flippant back. And then all of a sudden, she's saying, well, you know, we don't really need to continue this conversation or something like that. And I said, yeah, I guess not. And, but I say it in such a, like, false way. And in that moment, I realized if we hang up now, I mean, this all happens in like 10 seconds. And, and I know that she's got a lot of things that she's stressing about in her situation. And I work long hours. Maybe I'm a little bit on edge too. And I'm realizing if I hang up, maybe I'm not going to, no, turn around, apologize. I'm sorry, sweetie. I'm in my child here for a minute. And immediately we re-engage. So this is the kind of work for me, that is relevant in terms of not expressing or suppressing negative emotions, of internally working with this. It takes time, patience, and commitment. And for me, these things, they're so minimal compared to, for example, Garshan Rinpoche, a great Tibetan master who was imprisoned by the Chinese for 20 years. And I think had anger and perhaps hate at one point, and he, he worked with this. Probably with the non-expression of negative emotions, even though he probably, from a different tradition, would not call it that. And wow. And the Dalai Lama said to Arnaud Desjardins, who had filmed him and met with him and talked with him sometimes in private, the Dalai Lama said he had one request of him, never talk badly about the Chinese. Okay. Wow, that's saying a lot And when your whole spiritual culture has been attacked like that and possibly it's going to be lost and people have been murdered and all that. It's a lot. It's a lot. So my understanding is that there is an evolution, Orno says this in the book, from only me to me and others, to others and me, and then to only others. That process, I feel like, is available to all of us. I do not speak from experience, of course, with this, but I have a sense that conscience is an integral part of moving along this path. 
It is the evolution of conscience that you've just described. Last thing. Suppression, it's not the same as not expressing. Smetsky says that with suppression, negative emotion is going to jump out sooner or later. And I know this. Everyone does not need therapy. In studying with Lee Lozowick, he didn't recommend that too often. But he did to me. (laughs) I'm a particularly thick case. (laughs) And it was necessary for me. And the reason why it was is because I had a lot of judgment based on my upbringing about what was okay and not okay to feel. These kind of feelings are bad. And, you know, no matter what I might say about it or spout out in terms of dharma, that was really an underlying issue for me. And it was really important for me to express at some point. But as you become more in relationship with yourself, as I began to accept myself more and my feelings, there was such a relief, a weight lifted from me. I mean, I might have said I felt like I was enlightened at the time. I was just free of so much. And then, of course, there's the next step and going further on the path. I'm talking about for me, not for everybody. But for me, now I feel it's possible to work with not expressing negative emotions. And when we do that, we can really begin to observe ourselves at deeper levels and see more things. Like, what negative emotions do we have? This is what Aspensky says. Why do we have them? And I think also, what are we beyond identification with them? Right there is where the investigation must begin there. One thing that Arnaud says is that we don't see situations as they are because of emotions. Like, wow, isn't that true, though? We never see reality. We see our emotional relationship to reality. So when we work with not expressing, we give, you know, as Red Hawk was saying, we, you didn't say it exactly like this, Red Hawk, but we give things an opportunity to cook in us. It aids in the development or can aid in the development of consciousness. And some alchemy can happen with this energy is my sense of it. And what happens? I don't know. Let's find out. <laughs> yes. So, Red Hawk and Clelia, if there's anything that you would like to comment on about anything that we've discussed so far, please go ahead, and then let's open it up for a bit. I want to hear responses about you, Clelia. Yeah. I'd like to make a comment, maybe. I know that for myself, I understand the difference between emotion and feeling. And I like Red Hawk to comment on it. There's no question there's a difference between emotion and feeling. All right, and and others may also contribute here. Here's my experience with those two things. Emotion is always selfish. It's always only about me. Emotion always avoids relationship. Emotion leaves residue. That can be contained for many, many years. It is always the first responder. Right. Always the first thing to emote. All right, but feeling. Feeling is whole body. Emotion is centered in one part of the body. Feeling is whole body. Feeling always includes the other. Feeling is always about relationship. And feeling is a feeling of union. Emotion separates 
feeling unites. So that's briefly a sort of overview of the difference between the two. And I add a practical note on that. In your example, VJ, when you were talking about standing in line with, with the people at the pharmacy, and there was a lot of complaining going on, I was imagining myself in that situation and how I get out from emotion is to breathe into my body and start to become aware of my sensations. And then I become aware of the field and then I'm, I'm in a different relationship with the people around me. And I find it's always useful to bring it out of the realm of theory and look at real life situations. So for me, suddenly I become aware of the whole field. From that place, I might actually complain with them, just not identifying with my complaint, but because that's relational. <laughs> that might actually be relational in the moment, but it's where I'm centered in my body when I respond and that I'm not denying how I feel in my body. Like I feel irritated, I feel hot, I feel just all kinds of things. Well, that's how a lot of people are in relationship, complaining together. Some people, that's all they know how to be in relationship. Yeah, so what do you do with that? <laughs> you said something absolutely crucial, Clayley, which I want to reemphasize. Breath and sensation are the doorways to the present. Breath and sensation are the gateways to being in relationship with and accepting emotion without identification. Very crucial, very practical. Thank you so much. Does that at all relate to anything you were wondering about? That was my experience, that there is a difference between emotion and the feeling. I was going to say um, that the truth is non-conceptual. That's why so many traditions praise silence as both the, the means and the destination. Lao Tzu has this great quote. This is from the Tao Te Ching. Quote, to a mind that is still, the whole universe surrenders, unquote. There's another thought that to think that one moment is better than another is a kind of bias. We just have the immediacy of reality being manifest, and sometimes it's painful. But we just move on moment to moment not even the we, it's larger than I or us. It's just the continual happening of life. Well, in Buddhism, they say that all life is suffering. No, that's not true. It's all conditioned. It's the misunderstanding of life is suffering. Life itself is, it just is. Buddha is describing the mechanical world in that statement, not the awakened world, not the conscious world, not the objective world. That's a description of the mechanical world. We could probably go on and have a lengthy conversation about many things. But just for the remainder of the evening, I just want to make sure that if there are people who just really have something that they would like to ask or say, that they have the opportunity. Yes, it's the ability to move on, to keep moving, not circling around what happened. Thank you. Well, that's a practice, for sure. This is something that we cultivate in this life. I'm considering sentimentality and how everything habit is, I think, sentimentality and how much that gets in the way of like objective life. 
And I thank you for the quota on the feminine of the work because I really want to get out of the idea of beating myself up with the work. So I guess from segueing from sentimentality to being nourished by objective life and knowing that that's available as a way to live. So that's just a, a wish, an aim. Sentimentality, mind clinging to the past, it's a mechanical, it's not, it's illusory. It's not a response to present moment, different than love. It passes for love in, in the sleeping world, of course. There is some discrimination that is needed to be able to discern the difference between sentimentality and love or maybe attachment and love. And when true conscience is really operative or when we might be kidding ourselves. Well, I have to go back because this is just the theme for me right now in my practice. It's like sentimentality or, you know, is it love? Like, how do you make those distinctions? I think the distinctions get made I'm going to keep going back to this in the body, through the body. Just for me, what I've seen after so many years is how easy, how quickly I run away from unpleasant sensations and not just physical sensations, but they might be, you know, it might be emotions. But then if I stop and pay attention, it is just sensation and energy in the body. And so it's like really learning almost like for me right now, an expression of love is a willingness to just be fully, fully present with and feel whatever is going on. That's love. That is love. Right. Okay. Let's say sentimentality is going on. So rather than struggling against that, being like, well, okay, I'm feeling very sentimental right now. I see white puppies on the screen and they're awfully cute. And (laughs) I'm like, okay, well, so what's going on in my body? What do I feel? What is that? And just being really fully with whatever it is. But I guess if, you, if you're if you like expressing yourself sentimentally, that could be considered a negative emotion. I've heard that boredom could be considered a negative emotion. So for example, have you ever had that feeling you see a really cute baby or a really cute animal and you're like, I just want to eat it. <laughs> so what if I don't say anything and I'm just paying attention to what's in my body? Oh my gosh, this is very intense feeling that I feel in response to this, whatever it is. Everything that has been said tonight, this entire discussion is about body work. It is about returning to the body, attention in the body, attention to sensation, to breath, whole body sensation, and relaxing the body. It's all about body work. Breath in the body, yeah. I also just want to mention, Vijay, because you and Red Hawk both mentioned from two different people the importance of giving up resentment and not being offended. I guess it was Castaneda who said what weakens us is feeling offended. And that's a place that I feel like I still really have to work at just being in my body when I feel offended. Because so many enormous things come up. There's so much energy in me when something offends me. Yeah, me too. Well, you know, that's the thing. When there's been tremendous traumas, the feelings that come up for people are just overwhelming. 
we're building some distress tolerance in ourselves to be able to be with emotions that arise. Yeah. There's a maturing process that allows us to kind of be with what is. And and that is really the non-expression of negative emotions. The reason I asked Red Hawk if he wanted to talk about this in the first place was because I feel like this idea of non-expression of negative emotions can be so easily misunderstood in terms of feeling that it's the same as repression or like everything's going to be okay. Non-expression of negative emotions really is about learning how to be with what is. To contain energy. Yeah, to contain energy. Not leak it onto other people. Mm-hmm. There's this quote by Mr. E.J. Gold about the single greatest technique for work on self. I've got that right in front of me. Shall I read it? Please. Yeah. Okay, because it's one of my guiding principles. This is the quote from The Joy of Sacrifice. The single greatest technique for work on self is to endure the unpleasant manifestations of others without resentment, expressions of displeasure, or the demand for intelligence, reason, justice, or conscience on the part of others. Endure silently and cheerfully and suffer in the stew pot of tension. Unquote. Wow. Wow. Holy shit. Oh my God. <laughs> Lee Loswick, the great Western master, I think it should be said, had that quote affixed to the refrigerator in his living quarters. <laughs> when people came up to visit, who were all working among themselves in the community that he worked with, would read that as a reminder. Yeah. But again, with quotes like these or ideas like these, I just want to make a little advertisement for the feminine because for myself, while I'm really, really working on this in my life, I have to know when it's too much and I feel like I'm being cruel to myself or I don't actually have it in me, for example, to just be in that space. I have to know my limits. So it's like I have the intention to be able to do that, but I have to deal with the reality of my machine. So it's like this balancing act of like, how much, how much can I open to this for a certain amount of time? Okay, good. Now back off. Because if I don't, then I'm going to react and it can actually have a deleterious effect. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I don't think that's just feminine. I think that's real common sense. It's real common work sense. I have to know when to back off. And I want to do it before I'm running away or developing resentment, right? So it's like, okay, I can tolerate a little bit of this. Okay, I'm starting to feel like if I wait too long, and then now I've completely shut that person out of my life. And that's my fault, right? Because I thought I was doing this great thing of tolerating something, and but then it, it was more than I could manage. We have to give ourselves a break sometime and let a little bit of the steam off in a, hopefully a healthy way. Otherwise, things get worse, more of a problem. Yes, it's like this great aim to have. And then it's this process of, yeah, skillfully working with oneself. Sometimes I need to go to the movies. I would like to also talk about the negative emotions that we ourselves have 
we talk about other people, but we also have our own manifestations. And sometimes I think it's good to, if it's good for me to say something, I get to look at my negative emotions. <laughs> if I don't say something, I'm not exploring. I'm stuck. Someone feels like they need to make a boundary about something. First of all, it's absolutely crucial to the maintenance of long-term relationships that I make boundaries and that I say what my boundaries are and that I stick to them. If that's what you mean, and so I want to respond by rephrasing Mr. Gold's statement this way. The single greatest technique for work on self is to endure the unpleasant manifestations of my own. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And sometimes I have to explore saying something just to learn that I'm okay with those things. When I talk about them, my experience is it's best to talk with someone who is a practitioner. They will understand Sometimes the greatest help someone can give another is to just listen, but to talk about it, not with everybody and not willy-nilly and not over and over. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. It makes sense to go past something that, you know, it's not okay. Do you mean like, so for example, instead of not expressing yourself because you're afraid you might be expressing negative emotions, to just let yourself express the thing and observe it while you're expressing it. And then there's the possibility of something else, but there's no possibility if you're just holding yourself tight in. Yeah. It's like, you know, that something may not be the accepted thing. Right. And there you are going, but that's what I feel. And you, you watch it and watch it and watch it. And at some point, the right thing I feel to do is to use it in an experimental way yeah. rather than keep doing nothing. Maybe in those kind of situations, you're suppressing. I'm suppressing in those kind of situations. Right. And I spent a lot of time doing that. So I know that field really well. So yeah, thank you. Sometimes sharing what's not called good moves one off of the point. And I think this is the importance of good company in terms of having access to people. I need someone else to witness this with me, you know, because sometimes it is, it's just locked inside and it's not getting transformed and sometimes bringing it out into the open. I find that especially That's important to do so that I don't express negative emotions sideways or at someone. I need a friend with whom I can say, look, I've got this going on. And then there's a form of acceptance that goes on. Several times, different people have said it's a very individual process, right? Because each of us is so unique and different. And we have a different set of buffers, a different set of coping mechanisms. So. We're the ones who have to experiment and adjust. And I think it's really important to be able to to not be afraid of making mistakes or making a fool of ourselves too. That's the purpose of non-expression of negative emotions is not to prevent ourselves from looking foolish. (laughs) 
<laughs> like that. I want to take this one chat that just came and see if anyone has any comments on it, and then we should end. The question is, can journaling have the same effect as verbally expressing it? I think journaling, I think writing about it is healthy. Yeah. I don't think it's the same as dialoguing, but I think it's another extremely useful tool. This is all about opening up. And yeah. if that supports the process of that, for sure. This has been an incredibly lively discussion tonight. I'm very, very grateful for having been included. Thank you. Great. Clelia, any final comments? I feel really honored to be able to have been in this conversation over the past weeks and really appreciate everyone who's been on the call. And thank you, everybody. Okay, great. Thanks, everyone. Go forth and non-express. Um, <laughs>